Weaponized labor has been in the news a lot recently. From headline-grabbing strikes, to fights over gig workers' employment status, to conversations about workplace safety in light of the pandemic. I'm Jennifer Smith of Commonwealth Beacon, and I'm joined today by Chrissy Lynch, who just became the first woman to lead the Massachusetts AFL-CIO after former President Steve Tolman left the post after more than a decade. We're going to get into the opportunities and dangers for labor at this pivotal moment, preview her priorities heading up the Bay State arm of the nation's largest trade union federation, and also look a bit at how the labor movement has changed over time. Chrissy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the kind of moment that we're in right now in labor. Uh, It's been more prominent recently, especially for just kind of the average news consumer than it has been in decades. Public approval is at pretty substantial highs. And strikes have been regularly in the news, especially over last year, affectionately being called Striketober, which then became more of a state of mind than a month. But then at the same time, you also have pretty low participation in unions, especially outside of the public sector. So how are you thinking about sort of the prominence of labor right now, and also how that's connecting to its approval levels? Well, I think that we are seeing a resurgence in labor actions because I think workers are fed up. The pandemic brought a lot of societal inequities to a head. We saw essential workers who were on the front lines with no PPE, no sick time, no recourse if they got sick, uh, making largely poverty wages. At the same time, we saw hundreds of thousands of workers lose their jobs with no idea when unemployment was coming, how long it was going to last. So much anxiety. During that time, while all of this was happening, corporate profits were soaring, even more than usual. Now, we in the labor movement have always been very aware of that inequity, but I think it really put it on full display to like society as a whole. At the same time that child care became almost dysfunctional, transportation, housing, you know, we keep hearing of a worker shortage. There are plenty of working age people in Massachusetts. What there is is a lack of reliable and affordable childcare, housing, transportation, and you have all of that happening at the same time that there's not enough good union jobs that come with economic security benefits, with rising corporate profits and in, in that sort of the concentration of wealth at the top. And I think workers are fed up. And we have a right to be. And I think we're seeing that in a resurgence, whether it's UAW strikes, whether it was the big UPS strikes of the summer, whether it's um, the SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild of America, who it's taking on huge topics that really haven't been big topics of discussion before, like artificial intelligence, like the impact of algorithms who can actually steal the very likeness of a person. And what's the impact in the workplace? I think that workers are really feeling empowered now to organize in sectors they haven't before, to be tougher in contract campaigns and more willing to go out on strike. The the strikes that have happened, nobody wants to go on strike. It's not an easy vote. But when those votes take place, you have overwhelming majorities of members saying, let's stand for let's stand up against this greed and fight for what we know we deserve. And that doesn't just help union members, that helps all workers. A rising tide lifts all boats, as we like to say. So this is a really kind of interesting point, right? That A, a lot of labor questions are in flux right now. You mentioned AI. We're talking about kind of how new technologies impact current work conditions, which of course is age old whenever there's new technologies that impacts work conditions. But 
Are you seeing kind of the sorts of changes or growth in participation or buy-in that you'd like to see along with that? Because one thing that has been interesting is the level of support as contrasted with the level of participation. So are there ongoing efforts, especially as the nature of labor disputes change to try and bring in people who might not have felt affiliated with organized labor before? Yeah, I mean, I would say within our movement, within our existing members, you know, sometimes there are attacks that are scary and and really existential threats to us. But when we do our work, they can actually turn into something. I want to use an example. Um, a few years ago, um, National Grid locked out its workers. You you might remember that. And um, that was a really scary time. I mean, you had workers who were kicked off of health insurance, who had no idea if they were going to get unemployment insurance. And some of those workers were, you know, those union members were, um, I would say, like apathetic towards the union. By the time that lockout was over, they were activists. They were coming to every local union meeting. They're leaders now. And sometimes attacks like that I don't think that's what National Grid intended, you know, Um, but we've got activists now out of that. When we think about um, the Supreme Court's um, Janus decision a few years back, um, the same Supreme Court that's trying to take away a woman's right to her own reproductive choices is also attacking unions, is also attacking the environment. But what that did is it made public sector unions double down on internal organizing to make sure that we're not taking those members for granted. We are out there having conversations, making sure we're talking to members about the benefits of their union card. And it's really given us um, a, a fresh energy. I would say that's kind of the internal piece. Externally, we are trying to organize in sectors we never have before, whether it's tech, whether it's coffee shops, whether it's graduate student workers, and we're trying to seize opportunities in front of us to grow the labor movement, diversify it, and do other things like save our planet at the same time. When I think of um, some of the organizing we're doing to grow our membership, I think of the historic levels of federal funding available right now for clean energy projects and climate resilience. This money, and it already has, thank you to the Biden administration, it already has some baked in labor standards attached, but this money gives us a really generational opportunity to to do the work needed to make our society, you know, to make our communities climate resilient and our planet livable, while also growing the labor movement, growing the middle class, and diversifying our membership at the same time. So we're, we're tackling climate change, gender inequality, racial inequality, all at the same time. You know, this morning I was at an event called Massachusetts Girls in Trades that's Eastern Conference. And there were 700 high school girls from vocational CTI programs um, who want to be construction workers. That's the future of our membership. Those girls are not going to only get good union careers, middle class, family sustaining jobs where they can invest in our communities. They are going to be making our planet livable. That's the future of our membership. Our membership is growing despite, um, I think, federal labor law that is broken uh, and needs to be fixed. And um, it's diversifying at the same time. And so this kind of leads to uh, at least an interesting question for me, which is uh, to what extent unions are a monolith or are kind of differentiated among themselves. Uh, we all just, you know, hopefully got some sleep, but we just got out of an election season in which you'd see different unions kind of landing on different sides of candidates, different sides of issues. For instance, you might see the very construction workers and kind of the jobs that you mentioned landing in different places than, say, teachers' unions. So 
you're fairly new to this position. So how are you trying to approach both kind of conceptualizing the diversity inside union membership, but then also thinking about the role of inter-union solidarity? Mm. That's a very good question. Take a second. (laughs) I really appreciate you asking it um, because we are a very big tent. We are not a monolith. Our Federation of Labor here in Massachusetts, we're made up of over 800 local unions across the state. Um, That's nearly half a million members from every sector uh, you can think of. And it's our job at the AFL. It's not only to build like sort of mutual aid and support for each other's struggles. So if the plumbers union gets picked on, you don't only see the other trades standing there, but the postal workers and the hotel workers and the teachers, right? But it's also to to look at the different, the shared threats and the shared priorities, the shared opportunities to really suss it out. 800 local unions is is a lot. Every single one of them has different priorities, different perspectives, different viewpoints on how something should be handled. And it's our job at the AFL to really have a beat on all of that, to understand where all of them are at and sort of do the, the almost like the power mapping to look at them all and identify the through lines. What's the stuff we all connect on? And that's the stuff that we try and rally around. We try and unite around the stuff that connects us all. And between you, I mean, work connects us all, right? We all agree. We might not agree on a candidate, right? But we all agree on the importance of livable wages, of health care, of retirement security, of safety and training, of a voice at work. And those are the things we try and dig in on because for as long as work has been around, right, people have tried to divide us by race, by gender, by ethnicity, by immigration status, by who we love. And that even happens, that division tries to happen within our own labor movement, whether it's right-wing politicians or whether it's bad corporations. They try and break us up. And we try to bring people back together to remind everybody We all believe in growing the middle class. We all think everybody deserves a livable job where they can support their families. And we all agree the best way to do that is to grow the labor movement, to organize more people into unions, to negotiate good contracts. But we have to balance that with being active politically and legislatively to make sure we're fighting to protect the laws that help working people and to fight for new laws that protect worker people or that um, reflect a changing landscape or a very, very rapidly evolving, like when we think about technology, technology is something that is um, very much on my mind. But to like bring it back to some of the the generational money available for climate mitigation and, and climate resilience and energy efficiency, like we, when we see that money, we see shared opportunities. There's a whole bunch of unions who could put their members to work and take in more members to do that work. We might not all agree on gas bans, <laughs> but we all agree that like something needs to be done. And this is federal generational opportunity to fight climate change and grow the middle of the class at the same time. And, you know, we, we try and rally around the stuff we all agree on. Yeah. And where there is disputes, which they happen, 
Yeah, I was wondering if there was like a practical kind of example, because I, I, I mean, a lot of people, even though they can see sort of the way that labor, um, you know, inserts itself or already exists in a lot of the systems that they already kind of see in their day to day lives, aren't really familiar with like where these kinds of divisions come from and sort of how they are actually sort of settled or worked out. Is there is there kind of a disagreement that there was either kind of uh, we have to agree to disagree on within the AFL-CIO uh, union? or one where there was kind of a coalescing that seemed unlikely that might help people sort of understand an illustration of where that sort of divide and solidarity come together? I wouldn't use the word division so much as, um, I think, different priorities. Sure. Um, You know, like, the issues in front of the firefighters every day are very different than the issues in front of, you know, the electricians every day or the janitors every day or the postal workers. It's like there are certain issues that some unions just don't pay attention to because it doesn't it, it doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, it's it's not a high priority for their them or their members. And it's the AFL that often comes in and we're like, hey, this this union over here has this big, big issue. And can you go stand with them? And they do, you know, look, the political stuff and with candidates and stuff, um, we have a very robust endorsement process. Every local union has the autonomy to do what their union wants to do. And they have their own processes where endorsements and stuff get voted on by members. And we try and bring it all. We have 82 unions on our executive board where a lot of these decisions get made. And um, there's usually not all that much division. I mean, typically, if there's some unions here and some unions there as far as different candidates, if you actually peel back the layers and take away the names, there's not all that much of a difference between the candidates typically on the issues. And in those cases, the AFL kind of steps out and we're like, all right, you guys <laughs> work it out amongst yourselves. Do your thing. You know, may the bet, may the better campaign win. And who, no matter who wins, we're, we're confident we're going to have an ally in that office. That is honestly what happens. Usually the big existential threats before us, we are pretty much always on the same page. So you came in at a really interesting time when it comes to legislation as Mm -hmm. well. So uh, right now, you know, there's a bunch of legislation specifically on the right to organize. We've got something in cannabis workers. We've Mm -hmm. got the legislative employees, public employees in general, right to strike. Um, We'll come back to one of the big ones, which is gig workers um, in just a second. But walk me through right now how you've been approaching the sort of legislative environment around ensuring specifically or trying to ensure that some specific uh, workers groups have either a right to strike or or a right to organize in the first place? Well, one of the things that I'm going to be prioritizing is sort of breaking down the silos um, and making sure there are through lines between what we do legislatively, what we do politically, and what we do to support organizing and contract campaigns. And I think the bills that you mentioned really epitomize um, bringing some of those organizing campaigns into the state house. And I'm not even referring to like the state house staff union, which I think they absolutely, you know, should have the right. We have a staff union at the AFL CIO. I was the steward of it for a long time. I'm now management, but it's important. We need to live up to our own the values we espouse. There's also a bill you didn't mention, but it's to give striking workers unemployment insurance. Right. Right. Like giving teachers the right to strike, which, of course, nobody wants to do. But it's really important leverage um, to make sure that that management 
is bargaining in good faith. Because otherwise, as I've pointed out, federal labor law is broken. It's not working. We've got a bill for that in Congress. Our delegation's good. We just need some <laughs> some changes in other states. Um, but until that happens, like there needs to be more tools for workers and in unions to like actually put some teeth into the the labor laws we have on the books because employers know that they can just delay and delay and stall and stall. And even sometimes when they get fines, they're worth it to the companies to just pay them and move on. And the more power working people have to to hold the line, whether it's unemployment insurance or just the variability to go out, to walk off the job, it's it's really it's really important. And so we are trying to connect all of those things so that when we're out trying to organize new workers and the job sites, right, we're also in the state house trying to make sure that workers on strike have access to unemployment insurance, for instance, just to, to make it a little bit more holistic, right. you might say. <laughs> and so getting into some of those policy areas here. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned hiring diversity. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can kind of describe sort of the union environment that you came up in and sort of what you're hoping it looks like over the course of your tenure. What's kind of the big priority when it comes to making sure that a unionized workforce is not just maybe associated with the same demographics that it's historically been associated with, if that matters? Oh, it matters. I mean, my story, I had a very kind of non-traditional path into the labor movement. Um, You know, I went to school for journalism because I wanted to expose just injustices. I felt angry about society. <laughs> Common one. Up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I graduated with a journalism degree, I got a taste of advocacy writing as part of an internship. And I kind of fell in love with it. And I realized I wanted to fight injustice in a way where I didn't have to, I felt like I could be as opinionated as I wanted to be. And I fell into campaign work for political campaigns, it, it kind of gave me an outlet. I didn't have a, a direct line to any union jobs. I didn't even know where to start. I didn't know anybody. I'm not related to anybody. I didn't know anybody. I had, I had no idea. I knew that political campaigns gave me an outlet. So I worked on political campaigns while I bartended and waitressed, you know, at night, as so many people do. And it's through those campaigns that I got to know unions. And I was like, these are like, these are my people. <laughs> and I loved the economic justice lens. I kind of fell in love with that. That's how I met the AFL-CIO. They called me and offered me. They said, we have a job opening. You should apply. I ended up getting hired. Um, I felt like I had hit the lottery, you know, like to to be able to advocate for things I believe in and actually be getting like a like earning a pension (laughs) and like having health insurance. I mean, these were things that I had never had before. Um, But it was also scary because um, and a little overwhelming. I had a lot to learn. There were so many different acronyms. (laughs) Yeah, I will say it is kind of alphabet soup for the average person. (laughs) It is alphabet soup. There are a lot of, not just alphabet soups, there were so many different local union numbers. Yeah. 800, you know? And every single local has its its own set of top priorities, its own threats, its own initiatives, its own internal politics, you know? And here I am, I'm a a young person pretty recently out of college just trying to figure out how to navigate it. And there were very few people my age back then in the sort of labor space and there were even fewer women when I think back on some of those women I mean they they were sort of what taught me initially how I was taught what solidarity looks like I saw how they looked out for each other in spaces where we'd be in big rooms full of men and there would be only a few of us Um, I saw how they looked out for me and there were also you know 
so many of the male leaders who looked out for me, who really um, encouraged me to find my voice and to use it, who helped me understand the unique challenges before their union and really brought me into their fights. And I, I am so grateful for all of them. And, you know, that was 17 years ago. And now I look around the room and there's still a lot of work to do, especially among, you know, there's, there's not as many women in positions of leadership. But as far as our members, we are diversifying in a big way. And I am really, really proud of that. IBW 103, where I was today, 50% of their new apprenticeship class that they just took in was women. And we are being really intentional as a labor movement to make sure that as we grow our ranks and we, we add more members, that we're being really deliberate about making sure that we're bringing in women and people of color, people who have historically not had, not known where to go for a union job. That's why we've created programs like Building Pathways and Mass Girls and Trades, and we're really, really trying to get out there and make sure they know that, like, these union careers aren't just for white dudes who know somebody. They are for anybody who wants them. Everybody in our region should have the opportunity for these life-changing careers, and, um, one of the things that me and all, I mean, frankly, most of the unions are doing are also being really deliberate and empowering and doing leadership development with our members, particularly women and people of color who have historically had fewer opportunities, you know, to hold leadership positions. And I'm really proud of that work. And it's been really inspiring. And just in the time I've been around to see the changes, there's still more work to do. But um, so for Massachusetts, we have me as the first woman president of the AFL-CIO, which I never imagined in a million years would be happening when I think back about when I first started. But the Greater Boston Labor Council, Darlene Lombos, is, she's not only the first woman, she's, she's the first person of color to be the principal officer of that labor federation. Nationally, Liz Schuler is the first woman to be president of the AFL-CIO, 12 and a half million members. She was also a journalism major, by the way. Weird, weird coincidences. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's happening. It's happening. And it's going to keep happening. And um, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really excited about it. And as we've brought more women, as there's more women at the table, we've seen the issues we talk about change a little bit. We talk a lot now about child care. We didn't really talk about that when I first started. In fact, I can't remember it being discussed once in my first five years here. But as we've tried to bring more women into the, tr into the building trades, for example... We've realized that a barrier to recruitment and retention is that if you have to be in a job site at 6 a.m. and a daycare doesn't open till 9, that's a problem. So we've now got construction unions trying to figure out how we create, as a society, a child care system that actually works for people. That does connect in a lot of ways into some of the, the ways that work itself has changed. And I do want to make sure before we run out of time, because we could do this for an hour, but I wouldn't be allowed to, is the the question of tech and not AI, but like gig work and part-time work and app-based work right now. So there's a few efforts right now um, in the context of the second go-round of the Uber and Lyft-backed ballot measure to essentially 
make sure that gig workers or app-based workers are categorized as independent contractors. But the thing that I'm really curious about is there are some differences, for instance, between the SEIU measure um, and the AFL-CIO-backed measure, uh, backed bill specifically. So where is gig work in the kind of union universe right now? And why are there these sort of differences between the ways that different union groups are approaching the question? I think there is a lot we all agree on, even though, you know, on the surface, we may have slightly different approaches to how we get there. Corporations like Uber and Lyft, and this is something that we are in full agreement with SCIU and and others on, like, these corporations have figured out that um, an app is a very handy way to push widespread misclassification. Misclassification is like a silver bullet for companies who want to you know, who want to line their pockets. It it takes workers away from the most fundamental protections of our wage and hour laws, of the right to organize, anti-discrimination laws. It also, when they're independent contractors, it shields the companies from liability to their consumers. It helps them dodge taxes. I mean, it is everything all at once for these companies. And um, 10 years from now, most workers will probably log in and out of work or schedule in some way through an app. So how we do this in Massachusetts, where we do have the strongest law in the whole country around what determines whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor, it's really important. I think that these companies have been lying to their drivers, presenting them with this false choice that they have to somehow choose between the ability to schedule themselves or get the protections that come with employment status that they should be getting now. It's a false choice. There is nothing in our laws that don't allow that type of scheduling. And certainly the most, um, some of the most innovative companies in the world can figure out how to have a HR system that can accurately, you know, track the time and log people in. I was in Brazil a few weeks ago with the national AFL-CIO actually sent me there because things with Uber there are heating up. And they wanted me to go talk to some of the unions there about what our experiences have been. And I've also talked to a bunch of um, at worker advocates, frankly, from across the world during this three-year fight to understand what this is like. And the playbook is the same in every country. These big tech companies go there. They break the law as long as they can until they are called out. Then they dump money into changing the laws in their favor. When we think about rapidly evolving technology, it's the ways that they've been able to influence their workers and others have evolved rapidly. And we're trying to, we're still learning how to catch up. You know, I don't know, I'm sure you've heard of captive audience meetings before, right? Captive audience meetings in the past used to be where uh, management would bring 30 workers into the room and show them a scary video about how the business is going to close, right? Now, you've got companies that can press a button and instantly send a scary message to 10,000 workers with nobody, no worker next to them to be like, is this real? Like nobody to turn to, nobody to ask questions to. And they just pepper them with that. In Brazil, they, I said, what happened when, when they came here? They said, well, as soon as the government kind of called the companies out, well, they started sending messages to drivers saying that if they were employees, they were going to lose their flexibility. And then they sent all the drivers a push poll that said, do you want to be flexible or do you want to be employees? And most of them said flexible. And then they put that out in the press. And then they, there was a study that came out that said, I'm like, it's the exact same playbook here. So 
we in SEIU, we are in full agreement on that. That business model is exploitative, and it is not for Massachusetts. And um, these these drivers deserve all the protections that come with employment status and, of course, a right to join a union. That is something that comes with employment status. And I am hopeful that our federal government will address this um, where it should be fixed, frankly, which is the National Labor Relations Act and the passage of the PRO Act, because we're not the only state dealing with this. It's a little bit more complicated here because we do have the strongest worker classification test in the country. It's one that is in the PRO Act that is, um, that's filed in Congress. And um, we are very anxious that um, creating a loophole in that, they're going to just come back sector by sector. In California, where this passed, California had this also had the strongest worker classification Yeah, their law. ABC law was based off of It was ours, based yeah. off of ours. And as soon as Prop 22 happened there, where drivers were inundated with information about how to vote and from the companies. As soon as it happened there, we saw uh, unionized grocery delivery drivers uh, laid off and replaced with Instacart, 10 app-based 1099s. We saw other companies go back with a similar model to put on the ballot for healthcare workers. It's kind of like a Prop 22 for healthcare workers. So it's, we got to get this right here because how we do it for one sector, it has a very real threat to impact other sectors. People, I think the pandemic has showed, people demand flexible schedule. We need it. We figured it out at my work. <laughs> you know, um, I know a lot of places have. Workers should not have to choose between um, juggling work-life balance and taking care of their obligations at home. And am I covered by anti-discrimination protections? Not fake ones like the companies are, are purporting. The ones that they're actually already entitled to. Thanks again to Chrissy Lynch, president of the Massachusetts AFL-CIO. Thanks to our producer, John Gee. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to help other folks find us, leave a rating or review wherever you're hearing this. And if you want to get in touch directly, feel free to email podcast at commonwealthbeacon.com. We'll be back next week.